Hi, I'm Leah Potter. I'm Meredith Roten, and we are two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast from the second oldest newspaper in D.C., covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. I'm here with two of our staff writers, Sarah Roach and Lauren Peller, and this past week they've been working on a story about Greek life and diversity. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having us, Leah. Can you guys tell us about what inspired the story and kind of the reporting process? The story came after um, a Snapchat was posted and circulated around Facebook about a week and a half ago. Three members of Alva Fee were part of this post and they were expelled from their chapter soon after, and that sort of sparked a larger conversation about how diverse Panhel and IFC really are. Some multicultural Greek organization leaders have been voicing their opinions over the past two weeks about how they can make these Greek organizations more inclusive. Their respective chapters don't really have a lot of members. The leaders that we've talked with have two to three within their chapter, whereas Panhellenic and IFC chapters have 20 plus members. So it's really difficult to make an an inclusive and a really welcoming atmosphere um, for Greek organizations across the board. But they're saying that this needs to happen and it need, there needs to be steps taken that will address this issue. We spoke with a few leaders from multicultural Greek organizations and the three leaders mentioned that at the end of the day that they are Greek organizations and that however even though they don't have 40 or 50 members in their organizations they feel that they do not receive the same benefits that the Panhellenic Association does and the Interfraternity Council does. They also mentioned that because of how small their organizations are, they feel that they aren't recognized on campus. Now, were they attributing their their size to lack of recruitment opportunities in comparison to IFC and PNL? It wasn't necessarily about the recruitment process. It was just more of that how dominant PANHEL and IFC are on campus and how multicultural Greek organization leaders feel that the university recognizes them more because of how many members that they have. For multicultural Greek organizations, they aren't provided housing and they are almost shrugged off, according to the leaders who we spoke with. So in addition to not necessarily like having as many housing opportunities, are there any other things that they feel like they're kind of missing out on because they're within the MGC? A multicultural Greek leader mentioned that because UW is a predominantly white institution and we have Panhel and IFC, which are predominantly white organizations, it's really difficult to have people join multicultural Greek organizations, but they mentioned that unfortunately that's the case here, but the university as well as multicultural Greek leaders are working to implement new measures to help create a more inclusive and diverse environment, which is something that we should be seeing in the next few years. And university president Thomas LeBlanc just announced that Uh, one thing that he will start requiring is that recruitment chairs or people in charge of recruitment will have mandatory diversity training. Did anyone say that that is a step in the right direction, that that could actually enact change? Experts said that Thomas LeBlanc's steps were in the right direction, but at the same time, it's, it's not going to happen overnight. They said that these are steps that are just the beginning of making this change on campus. Also, he mentioned that derogatory comments like the one we saw with Alpha Phi, uh, 
a week and a half ago are becoming more memorialized and that we see these comments more frequently and it's just the nature of being in a large group of people and he also mentioned that he doubts that this will be the last incident incident of its type but at the same time when you put a snap when you put something on social media like that it sort of spreads like wildfire and it doesn't have the same effect as a comment that is just said at the dinner table to friends. So once these type of things are seen on social media and they're circulating so quickly, experts have said that it has the power to create change a lot faster than it would have otherwise. Historically, has there been this culture sort of building around Greek life where it's more re-emphasizing that those who are in it are part of a white and more elite status? We spoke with Hank Neuer, a journalist and an author of multiple books pertaining to hazing among Greek organizations. And here's what he had to say. A lot of people think the hazing itself is about belonging and that uh, fraternity life is all about belonging. After 40 years of writing about this, I'm not sure it's true. Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of ways it's about status and power and the fact that there is perceived, at least by members, to be elitism in belonging to one of these groups or to be a member of a varsity athletic team. I think the elitism is where the problem is coming here. Diversity and on GW's campus has been an issue for a long time. We've, we've covered this in the past where they have consistently underrepresented minorities. Is this something that has directly trickled into Greek life? Yeah, this has been a long-running issue on GW's campus. There has been a history of underrepresentation of Hispanic and Black students. It goes to show that these groups are sort of a subset of a larger issue of what's happening. And the steps that the university is taking, the steps that LeBlanc has, has laid out, is something that's not just addressing diversity within Greek organizations. It's addressing diversity across campus. Thanks for coming on this week and telling us about issues within the Greek community in respect to diversity. Yeah, thanks, Leah. It was really nice talking to you. I'm here with Meredith, who this past week was working on a story about online learning and a check-in about a task force that formed this fall. Yeah, I'm actually really excited to bring this up again because when this report came out in the fall, that was kind of questioning whether or not GW's online education was up to par with traditional learning. At the faculty senate meeting on Friday, Provost Forrest Maltzman gave a presentation with his basically his response to this task force, um, and he talked to a lot of people in an online learning committee um, and with various deans of different schools to kind of get their input on it as well. So he's got he's working with a lot of data. It's a very long report just basically saying that he thinks that the online education at GW is up to par, but also he did come up with his own recommendations uh, for people who are teaching online classes to kind of follow and maybe standardize. But this isn't the first time that online learning at GW has fallen under scrutiny. No, so the reason the task force was formed uh, at all was actually because of a class action lawsuit in 2016 from a group of students who said that their education wasn't what GW had originally promised and they were suing for like the cost of their degree because they were like this is not what we signed up for and after that a task force was formed to find out why that might have been the case for those students. Were the points being addressed by Provost Maltzman 
indirect response to the previous complaints? Were they directly reflective of what past students have been complaining about? Really, what past students had complained about, all we know about is the class action lawsuit and all that they said was that what the class was advertised was not the same as what it was. Provost Maltzman like really just focused on, you know, how good the education is, not really on like whether or not it was the advertised education. He said that he truly believes that face-to-face education and online education at GW are the same and he said based on all of the evaluations that students have filled out that they are satisfied overall and that they are like happy with the education that they're getting overall and nothing nothing has really changed um in in that regard but is everyone saying the same thing like is everyone on board with what Maltzman is saying that it's up to par and is of good quality most faculty were on board I spoke to professor Jean Johnson who teaches online courses in the nursing school and she basically said this is not surprising to her because she's been teaching online classes for years and they the classes in the nursing school already follow the quality matter standards and so do several of the other programs at the university but there is, there is not standardized. So, and that and that is where there was some conflict because uh, Professor Phil Wirtz in the faculty senate meeting said that he agreed that online learning was of good quality at GW. It seemed, but there is not a standardized set of programs at GW, and that every even though the programs may be good, there's like some are better than others. Phil Wirtz is going to be introducing a resolution at the next faculty senate meeting regarding this and regarding making the standards more uh, across the board. What will he hope will come out of this resolution? What would be the next step after that? He didn't really have a lot of details at the meeting actually. He just said I'll be working on it in the next month or so and I've been working on it since they had a meeting uh, in January but he didn't really give a picture of how that's going to look yet. This is professor of biomedical engineering Jason Zara talking about how he became a believer in online education after formerly being a skeptic. I, I say that because I started as a skeptic. I came into uh, SEEDS in 2002. Um, in 2007, after hand-bringing my first doctoral student to completion after meeting after meeting with him, I went to the doctoral hooding ceremony and I hooded Paul. And then I watched the engineering management people hood a bunch of people. And my first thought was, how could this be? This can't be real. This can't actually work. Um, and so I actually, uh, in 2016, served on a uh, review panel, a review group in the School of Engineering, and I believe Dean Donnelly brought me in because he knew that I was going to be skeptical of it. Um, we looked at the program, we looked at all of the data, as Forrest has shown this data, and I think you can't look at programs without looking at the outcomes. Um, and I was just, I pulled up uh, our report, or the report that we gave to the Dean, and I'll read you one sentence. It says, the committee was highly impressed with the outcomes of the program in terms of a large number of refereed journal publications, which actually one required of every graduate from this program. Um, graduation rates, employment, and positions held by the graduates, and the level of overall satisfaction. I read, as I read a little bit more, I realized there's a lot of hypocrisy in the next response, because we then said why, how we think they could do it better. Um, and I think we have to be really careful as educators, because it's really easy to fall into the trap that what I do, and I think I'm really good in the classroom, I don't want by their horn, but um, and so when you look at these things, you're like, well, you know, what if it's if it's out of the classroom? Is it different? Can it be as good? How could that work? But if you look at the outcomes, and they actually, and it's forced to show if the outcomes, the students are happy and they're learning and they're doing well, um, then I think we have to be really careful about saying it may not look like what we have done. It may not look like my doctoral experience, but it doesn't mean that it's 
inferior or different, and it probably is the future. And is online learning a pretty prominent part of GW? Is it a major earner of revenue? Does it bring in a lot of money for us? Online learning, something that was brought up multiple times during this meeting was the fact that online learning is a way that GW can get new revenue when it's kind of capped as it is right now because of, you know, it only has a set amount of students it can allow with the enrollment cap, but in online learning, it could theoretically be expanded because it's distance learning and students uh, don't have to come to a classroom to do it and don't have to be housed, whatever. And right now, online learning is around 10% of tuition revenue. It's about $110 million wow. in, in revenue. And that is like a small part, but online learning is growing every year. There's more programs almost every year. And that's a big trend throughout the country that online learning is growing and it's a good way for universities to make money. There was some discussion at the meeting about you know, whether or not online learning is really cheaper. They were saying it's not as cheap as people were thinking that it is just because they do have to buy some expensive equipment for uh, distance learning. But mm -hmm. overall, that is the appeal of online learning is that it's relatively cheap and you can serve a lot of students at the same time. Gotcha. Thank you so much, Meredith, for updating us on this online learning task force. Yeah, we'll definitely still be keeping an eye on this. Matt's back this week, and we're going to talk about a story that our reporter wrote where she interviewed GW students about their worst Valentine's Day stories. I'm really excited, Liz. They're really funny. Matt, why don't you tell us about some of them? Sure. So we all know that Valentine's Day can be especially treacherous for long-distance relationships. We all mm -hmm. have that one friend who's always like, oh my god, like my, my Derek is like, you're just like, girl. <laughs> but this... Freshman had a lot of trouble with her boyfriend on leading up to the holiday because she wouldn't visit him at school. And in order to patch things over, the boyfriend decided to surprise her with a bouquet of flowers. That's cute. Yeah. You'd think it goes well enough, but the flower shop messed up. And instead of a bouquet of flowers that were red roses, it was a bouquet that had a note on it saying, I'm so sorry for your loss. Oh, God. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. And then to top it all off, when she actually got the bouquet that she was supposed to get, they were totally almost dead. Mm, bad news. Yeah, I think that's pretty symbolic for that relationship. <laughs> What's the next one? So Valentine's Day can be especially awkward for those relationships that are like in that what are we sort of phase. I don't know if you've had that, Liz, but this sophomore went to great lengths to keep her date as cool as possible. No, like no romance going on there. Mm, so what did she do? So when he asked her what type of restaurant she wanted to go to, she picked this restaurant specifically because it was known for serving an older population. I guess she was trying to make it as as unhip as possible for the... I see, but that's not that bad. No, no. Uh, what's worse is that when he was suggesting they go to see Fifty Shades of Grey, she was like, no, we should go see American Sniper. <laughs> I guess she said it would ruin the mood, and mm. that's what she was hoping. It definitely would. What else you got? So I think it should be a golden rule of Valentine's Day, probably not to accept a date with your ex. Right, obviously. On that day, yeah. Mm -hmm. And this pair had been going out for two years and just decided to break up in a the few weeks before the holiday. And then they went on a date? Yeah, they, mm. they were like, we don't want to be alone. Couldn't we spend it with each other? And I'm like, well, you're just hoping to have a tense, really bad dinner, but she thought it would be relaxed. And that is until she felt her phone vibrate and saw a text from another guy. Oh no, did the ex-boyfriend see? 
Yeah, she says before she could even grab her phone, the ex was on that phone. He was there. He was looking. He knew. (laughs) And he was like, who's that? And she was like, some stupid boy. And he was like crying afterwards saying, you're going to move on from me and love someone else? Oh, God, this is bad news. She tried to comfort him, but he was just like, it's going to be really hard getting over me. And she was just staring into her chicken nuggets, making a mental note, never to take a date from an ex again. (laughs) Well, this is just a bad plan from the start. Yeah. They should have known, honestly. Yeah, and ghost those exes next time and you'll never have to date them again. This is true. All right, Matt, so what did you learn from these? Check choice with your florist. American Sniper over Fifty Shades, even now. Well, Fifty Shades three years out, try um, The Shape of Water. You know, just (laughs) anything. (laughs) Um, But, and, uh, well, yeah. I think and also never date your ex. Yeah, I think um, that goes without saying, but we said it. Well, it was really fun reading these, Liz. Yes, they were funny. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for joining us this week on Getting to the Bottom of It. The show is hosted by news editors Leah Potter and Meredith Roten and features culture editor Liz Preventure. This podcast is produced by assistant video editor Ariana Dunham, managing editor Tyler Loveless, and assistant copy editor Emma Terrell. Music was provided by Ulk Studios. And a special thanks to Matt Dines, Sarah Roach, and Lauren Peller. See you next week.